kids, you're dismissed. Let's take our Bibles. Our study this morning is in the book of Mark. The book of Mark, chapter 10. Throughout this Christmas season, we are looking at statements that Jesus made about himself that give us a deeper insight into why he came. Now, we know why he came, but Jesus made some specific statements that really detail it and really give us clarity and a greater understanding and a greater appreciation for why he would bother to come to earth as a baby and live and minister and then go to the cross and die and then rise again. And the concept that God would even do this is so inscrutable and so wonderful and so beyond our understanding that uh, it's easy sometimes, I think, just to kind of accept it and move on rather than really being uh, overwhelmed by the depth of it and to really get a, a greater understanding, even as some of us have been saved maybe 30, 40 years, some of us are new believers, but, but really getting an understanding of the depth and significance of what Jesus has done. So we're, we're focusing on those reasons this year uh, of why he came. And they may be familiar and you may already know them and they may be the foundation for your faith. But my prayer this year, and this has been my prayer for my own heart, is that we will really just be stirred and just uh, so full of gratitude for what Jesus has done in, in taking upon himself to come to earth. And that as we appreciate that and as we are full of gratitude for that, that then we'll start to replicate what he's done in our own lives. Now, Mark 10 is a very interesting passage in that respect because it offers such a dramatic uh, contrast between how we think and how we prioritize and how Jesus thought and the priority that he showed through his actions. And and even though we're really just, in my mind, and it's probably not what's going to be the reality because you know that never is, but even though in my mind we're really just going to focus on one verse this morning, The context is so critical here. And understanding when this happens, what's going on, what people are saying, what people are doing, it it highlights just how unnatural the concept we're going to talk about this morning is to us. Just how, how unusual it is for us as humans to think this way. Which means that if we're going to replicate this, if we're going to do what Christ did and what he calls us to do, that we're going to have to really uh, be emptied of self and filled with his Holy Spirit and, and the attitude that Christ had. But as we look at this, Jesus is very clear what his purpose is. And what he says, and again, I've been struck by this this week, it, is, it, it, it seems so contrary to what we would expect the Son of God to do especially as we see the mindset of those around him and those who are closest to him. And when we read that this is just about a week before his creation is going to put him on a cross and crucify him. And then it's compounded even more by the conversation that's taking place prior to this and and the five actions that we'll look at in a moment, the five actions and, and statements that these men around him are making that if you were about to sacrifice for somebody, you would go, I, boy, I don't know if I really want to go through with this because these guys don't get it. And they certainly don't appreciate it. And their heart is not in the right place. 
And yet Jesus, his, his response and his actions are so amazing. So we're going to look at his purpose in a minute, but let's get the context first, okay? Our, our key verse this morning is verse 45, Mark 10, 45. But I want to start all the way back in verse 32, and I know it's a lot to read, but, but this context is going to be very important, okay? Mark 10, 32, thank you for turning. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Then they will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, just take a break there for a second. The disciples were not unfamiliar with Jesus' designation of himself as the Son of Man. He had used it before. So it's not like they're going, who are you talking about? They understand, based on previous teaching, that the Son of Man is him. So when you look at that, you see that he is giving great specificity about what's about to happen. Pick it up in verse 35. As he's just said that, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That was appropriate, right? And he said to them, What do you want for me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism which which I'm baptized? They said to him, We are able. Well, I think with great confidence there. We're able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and you'll be baptized with the baptism which I'm baptized. But to sit on my right and on my left, that's not mine to give, for it is for those with whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, oh, now let's get the crowd involved. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. Now let's look at our key verse. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus has just talked, prior to what we just read, he's just talked to the rich young ruler who said that he had done the law to its letter and that he wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what, you got one more thing that's holding you back. You need to give up all you have. Not because poverty is holiness, but he says that is hindering you from really following me because it's still your God. It's still your crutch. And the man goes away sad because he didn't want to give up that. He didn't want to sacrifice everything in order to follow Jesus. And, and the people that are following him, we see in verses 32 and 33, now are, are excited, but they're also a little scared. And I don't think it's necessarily because they're scared because they know there's opposition to Jesus and that there's a threat on his life. I think they're scared because all of a sudden they really begin to realize that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not easy. Anyone who tells you that being a disciple, that following Christ, that being a Christian is easy, is not telling you the truth. It's a hard calling, and they're starting to get that. But the twelve still don't quite 
comprehend it. At least James and John don't. Because the next thing we see is that those who are close to Jesus, and James and John were were kind of first-tier disciples. Some of the other ones, we don't read their names as much. But James and John were, were right up there. Peter, James, and John. So two of the inner circle, so to speak, two of the top three in terms of proximity and, and teaching and experience, two of the top three come to Jesus and, and they have an outlandish question that, that they want Jesus to fulfill. Hey, Jesus, hey, we, we want you to do what we want, okay? Let's just be clear on this. We would like you to give us what we want. And our request is we want to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Now, the question here, if you look at it, isn't the only problem. Because there are at least five distinct examples here in the text of of the way we think. And it is sinful and it is self-focused and it is completely different from what Christ modeled. So if you're taking notes, write these five things down. We'll just run through them very quickly. This will be a short message this morning. Look at the first one in verses 34 and 35, where we see that the disciples didn't listen to Jesus. The first problem is they're not listening to Jesus. He tells them very clearly, this is going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem. We're headed that way right now. When we get there, I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be sentenced to death. They're going to spit on me. They're going to beat me. They're going to scourge me. And they're going to kill me. Listen now, disciples, in A couple days, I'm going to be on a cross. And then after three days, again, specificity, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, there is literally no way that he can be more definitive and more detailed about what's going to happen. And they should not only be emotionally and spiritually anticipating what's going to happen, but they should be prepared for it in every way. But if you look at the text between 34 and 45, 35, it's like there's absolutely no reaction. We don't see the disciples going, wait, what? What? Jesus, what? That's why we're headed to Jerusalem? You're going to be arrested? What are we going to do? How do we respond? What's the next move, Jesus? Now, what should we do while you're, you're going to die? Okay. We're kind of, we've kind of heard that through your teaching. What do we do now? And where do we wait? And where should we be on that third day when you're going to rise again? There's none of that. The next thing we see, and this is the second thought, is that James and John demand that the Lord gives them what they want. I don't know how we can read that in any other way than audacious expectation. Give us what we want. It's like Lucy in the Charlie Brown episode, right? Or, or Sally. All I want is what I, what's coming to me, what, what I deserve, as she writes a letter to Santa with Charlie Brown kind of going, ah, just give me what I want. Lucy, uh, Sally says, you know, tens and twenties are fine. Uh, hey, Jesus, give us what we want. You, you, you now, come on, you, you have to give us what we ask, right? So we want the highest position in heaven that we can have. And they seem to really believe that Jesus has to do that, like he's some sort of genie. We could do a whole study on this. We're not going to. Number three. Third problem is that they're clueless. They're clueless at how ridiculous this request is. Their entitlement mentality kind of reveals the deep pride in their heart and the fact that they're 
oblivious to this kind of impudent request it just just tells us that their heart is not in the right place. And then look at verse 39. That gets compounded when Jesus kind of tells them, and I believe this is dripping with irony. Do you think you're up to the job? I don't think Jesus actually means that. I think he's saying, okay, guys, this is great. You want to have the highest position in heaven right next to me. Do you think you're ready? Uh, yeah, it's awesome. He's going to give us what we want. Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. Isn't it amazing how much we we value ourselves even in the presence of God? How much we make it about us. And I'm not being critical here, I'm just being honest. How, how much we make it about us when we go into the presence of the Lord. This has application to confession of sin. This has application to prayer. It has application to how cavalier we are with our religious freedom. Uh, but but that's not the point. The, the, the point is that self-focus creates a lack of self-awareness. And there's really no greater danger that, that we can be in as Christians than when we're blind to sin and unteachable about our sin because that makes us arrogant and it makes us blind and defiant and God never blesses that. So they don't get his tone. They don't get the irony. They don't get what, if we can say, the sarcasm. Like, you guys sure you're up to that? Because we can make that happen. They don't get it. They're like, yeah, we're ready. It's awesome. And that overconfidence is stunning. Look at the fifth thought. This highlights itself when the ten other disciples kind of react and they're indignant. And that seems rational, it seems good, but there's a sense in the way the Spirit writes this that there's some self-righteousness in their hearts. Now, we'll see how to, how to apply that in just a moment, but first look at what Jesus does in response. He gathers them around Him, and this is in verse 41. He gathers them around Him, and, and He uses an analogy from their culture that shows just how mankind thinks and functions. He says, great leaders or, or people that are in power exercise their authority and, and they use their position to not only rule, but to make sure that everybody else knows that they're in charge. But I'm telling you, there's a different way. As believers, as my children, as my followers, there's a different way. And, and you need to understand that the way to greatness in God's sight is to be a servant but, but let me take it beyond a servant, not only to be a servant, but to be a slave. Now, as I'm studying, and this is always good to do when you're studying, I said to myself, why does God use two different words there? Why, why is there a distinction? What's the difference between a servant and a slave? Because I'm assuming that if Jesus says that, that he's trying to make a point. And this is the fun of Bible study. When you come to the Word and you can use the resources that there are now for study, we can look that up. So let's define each word, okay? The word servant here, everybody see it? The word servant is the word in Greek, diakonos. It's the word from which we get the word deacon. And it literally means someone who executes the commands of another. So he says, as my children, 
you're supposed to be my servants. He who wants to be great should be a servant. They should execute the command of another person. But then he goes beyond it and he says, you also need to be a slave. And the word slave has a much deeper meaning of sacrifice. Slave means one who gives himself up to another's will, one who is devoted to another to the disregard of his own interest. Now notice that we are told to be both. We are told to be a servant and to be a slave. And we're called not only to give ourselves to the will of the Lord, we're also called to give ourselves as slaves and servants to each other. And we're to do that, here's where it gets hard, at the complete disregard of our own interests. And Jesus doesn't give latitude here. He doesn't say, but there are exceptions. Make sure that that these conditions are met, because if they're not met, you don't actually have to be a servant and a slave. He says there's a high expectation. Now, you look in culture and you see that powerful people and people that are prominent, people that you look up to that are kind of first, They're executing their authority and they're saying this is how it's going to be and they're driving it and they're letting everybody know I'm in charge. But he says, for you and for me, it's completely different. For us, we are to take the lesser position. For us, we are to be servants and we are to be slaves. And I think the reason that he gives both words is a servant. You can execute the commands of somebody else, but you can do it with a bad attitude, right? stinking boss, I can't believe i got to do this. Stupid assignment. You know, nobody's ever done that at work. I know, but just try to imagine it, okay? Ridiculous assignment. I can't believe you're going to spend three weeks on this. This is completely worthless. I see it with kids. Why do I need to learn this? This is biology. I'm never going to use this in life. Yeah, you pro- I've been honest. Yeah, you probably won't. But guess what? you got to do it anyway. You can execute the command. You can act as a servant. And still have a bad attitude. But you can't act as a slave and have a bad attitude. Because it's the disregard. That's an intentional decision. It's the disregard of your own interests in order to sacrifice for somebody else. And Jesus says, I'm the standard. I came to serve. The word is a variation of diakonos. It means to serve by supplying something. Jesus was already at the will of his father. I don't understand it. My brain doesn't work that well to understand how that works, that he was at the will of the father. But Philippians 2 says he set aside his rights. In other words, he put aside his authority and he put aside his interests in order to go to the cross joyfully to you for you and me in order to serve as a ransom for us. Now, we'll look at that, what that means in a minute. But before we do that, Look at what Jesus did. It says specifically, verse 45, that he came to serve. He came to serve. One of the things I believe that the devil hates so much about Jesus and what he has done and how he's delivered us from the bondage of sin is the way he did it. I think it would have been easier for Jesus just to come and say, This is how it's going to be. I'm going to make it right. And I'm just going to declare as God that you're forgiven. I think the devil would have had less problem with that 
than the fact that Jesus came in the form of a baby. Dependent, humble, helpless, that he came to serve. I think it's completely maddening to the enemy that Jesus took that position. C.S. Lewis talks about it in his book, The Screwtape Letters. How many have read The Screwtape Letters, just out of curiosity? Like three of you. Okay, we got to get you reading that book. That is a classic. It's the perspective of a devil, a senior demon, training a junior demon into how uh, to tempt Christians. And Lewis's insight in this book is just amazing. And he talks about this concept of how frustrating it is for the enemy, and we're glad it is, right? How frustrating it is for the enemy that, that Christ came to serve. Listen to what he says. Remember always that he, speaking of the Lord, really likes the little vermin. That's you and me, by the way. He really likes the little vermin and sets an absurd value on the distinctness of every one of them. When he talks of their losing themselves, he only means abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they've done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts, I'm afraid sincerely, that when they're wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. Hence, when he is delighted to see them sacrificing even their innocent wills to him, he hates to see them drifting away from their own nature for any other reason. And we should always encourage them to do so. What's he saying? He's saying it, it just drives me crazy that Christ would show us how to sacrifice ourselves by being the sacrifice first. And that that proves his love for us because if he hadn't come to redeem us, if he hadn't done it this way, if he hadn't laid aside his own rights to give himself as a ransom, we would never learn what it means to sacrifice. Jesus had no reason to do this. There was no compelling action that Jesus had to take to do this, other than it was driven completely by his love. And while he could have taken any approach and been right, while he could have taken any tack and been justified, God says, I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to send him not to promote himself, and not to declare how great he is, I am sending him to serve. And for you to be forgiven, and you to be cleansed, and you to be filled by the Spirit, and saved forever, he's going to come as your sacrifice. He's going to come as a servant. Now the devil doesn't understand that at all. Because that's completely opposite of who he is and what he's about. He was in heaven as an angel. He had the ability to rejoice and be in the presence of God forever. And instead, he said, I want to be in charge. I want to be the one who who is promoted. I want to take the place of God. I want to make it about me. I'm not going to submit to the Lord anymore. I'm going to resist what he's doing, and I'm going to take over. That's why when Jesus is being tempted in in The Bible, when he goes out in the wilderness and the devil comes to meet him, what's the temptation that that he throws at Jesus? Hey, Jesus, act independently now. Come on, just you and me out here in the desert. I know you're hungry. You don't have anybody around you. I know the Father's watching, but come on now. You're kind of weak. 
Let's go. It's time. This is the moment to break away. Act independently now. Come on, do what I say. Make some bread out of stones. Come on, just 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 jump off. You know the angels will catch you. It says so right in the Bible. But but really what I need you to do, Jesus, is to bow down to me. And I'll give you everything. In other words, stop submitting. Stop being a servant. Stop giving in to the will of the Father. Instead, act independently now. Act as your own person. Because the devil knew that if he could break Jesus on that one thing, that this table would never exist. If he could get Jesus to break from his sacrifice and to break from the will of the Father and to break from that surrender, then everything was off the table. He knows if Jesus continues on and gets to the cross and dies and rises again, that his kingdom is done forever. That's why the enemy always comes after our pride. That's why he always tries to get us to be selfish and self-sufficient and to act independently of the Lord. Instead of walking by faith and yielding our will and all the other things we talk about all the time, submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit and being filled with him. Because if he can make that happen in our lives, then his plans will carry through. Now, why is that important? Look back at the text. You're listening very well this morning. Look at verses 32 to 41. It's no coincidence then, based on our knowledge of how he works, that the five actions occur when they do, right before Jesus enters Jerusalem to defeat the devil. This is the last gas effort. This is, this is his final throw to, to, try to, to try to disrupt what is going on, to try to dissuade Jesus from finalizing the work of service. Timing is everything. Why all of a sudden, right before Jesus is about to get on that donkey and go down the hill and people are going to wave and yell, why all of a sudden do we see this weird conversation with the disciples? Why would James and John, two of the three inner circle, Come to Jesus and say, come on, we want what we want. Time to pay up. Time to give us what we want. And we want glory. We want fame. We want eternal recognition. Give it to us. That's no coincidence. His closest disciples all of a sudden become self-serving and ungrateful and proud And they don't even listen when Jesus says, I'm about to be sacrificed. But Jesus doesn't take the bait, does he? Instead, he uses this, look back at the text, as a teaching opportunity to say to the disciples, look, as my followers, you're going to have to think differently. As my disciples, it's not about what these two guys just asked for. You are supposed to serve like I'm serving. I thought about that this week in terms of my own life and my own ministry and my own relationships. And I asked myself the question I want to ask it of you this morning. What would it look like if I always made it my first priority to serve the other person? 
what, what would that look like? It's, it's a hard thing for us to understand because it's so contrary to what our humanity tells us. But, but do a little life assessment right now. Do a, do a little relational analysis. What if you and I committed ourselves to go beyond even the, the command to execute the commands of others? Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me squirm a little bit. Somebody starts giving me commands. I'm proud enough to say, who are you? And why are you telling me what to do? But, but he tells us to, to work as a servant. And then, not only if we could get over that and say, all right, I will take that role with other people. What if then we took the attitude and actions of a, ser- of a slave? Which, by the way, if you look at verse 44, he's calling us to do. And what if we completely gave ourselves to the will of the Father and to the will of those around us and we devoted to the Lord and each other at the disregard of our own interests? How different would our marriages be? How different would our friendships be? How, how, how much would, would our relationships with younger Christians or weaker Christians be changed when they're looking to us to set a holy example and a holy standard, and we actually took that upon ourselves. How much would it impact our church? How much would it impact our ministry and our outreach? And here's the key. If we're going to do that, we have to do that without condition, without motive, without explanation, without anticipating any reciprocation, without trying to manipulate somebody, without any desire to be recognized or appreciated. He just says, listen, if you're going to follow me, you serve as a servant and you serve as a slave. Now that would completely change our relationship with the Lord. We'd be more humbled and we'd be more surrendered we would spend more time studying his word because we want to say, look, if I'm going to serve you, I've got to know what you're telling me. I can't now be indifferent about the word of God because this is how I learned to conform. And we'd spend more time in prayer because we'd say, if I'm going to be a servant of you, Lord, if I'm going to be a slave to you, then I have to yield myself completely to your will. So I've got to go every day, every moment and say, God, I surrender to you. Teach me what you want. I want your spirit to speak to me. And our faith would be unshakable because we would trust in nothing else. And our ministry would be unstoppable. Because who isn't drawn to somebody that wants to serve them? Seriously. If somebody wants to serve you and minister to you and help you and encourage you and strengthen you and they're not looking for anything back, you go, wow. Imagine if you were in a restaurant and the server didn't expect a tip. How would you know a good server? You would know a good server by somebody that continues to serve you joyfully and happily, but they're not getting anything back. We're always going to be drawn to those people. And Jesus says, look at it one more time. He says, this is what I expect of you. Now, there would be a powerful secondary effect, and this is where I want to conclude. Oh, my time is slipping by. This would not only strengthen our relationships, let me make the last point, but it would free people. It would do the same thing that Christ has done for us because by his service, what's happened? Christ has freed us 
from the bondage of sin, right? How many believe and appreciate that that's true this morning? He has freed us from the bondage of sin. The chains are gone. My sin's set free. I forget the words. I'm quoting it wrong. It doesn't matter. You know it. In other words, off with the chains of sin, off with the chains of death, off with the chains of hell. I'm now a free man. God has delivered me by his service. Now, he says, if you serve one another, the same thing's going to happen in a relationship. You're going to free people from bondage. Part of the reason we spent time on those five things is because this is our default. This is what happens. And if we're not free from self, if we're not taking the attitude of a servant, then this will characterize us. We get stubborn. And we get entrenched in ourselves. And we refuse to listen or be taught or or change. And then we start to demand our way from the Lord and from others. And we get irritated. We don't get what we want. And then because there's no humility, we become blind toward who we are. And people try to minister to us and counsel us and, and, and help us. And we just say, you don't know what you're talking about. And then at that point, self just explodes. And we become overconfident in our abilities. And we wonder why people can understand what a great person we are. And then it goes into self-righteous thinking. And we start to do emotional damage to each other because we're so full of self. Is it any surprise that God says, when I see pride, I oppose it. I smell hell when I see pride in you. So there is no way I'm going to allow it. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to eradicate it. And I'm going to fight it with everything I have. But there's a powerful flip side. When we sacrifice, when we take the model of Jesus, when we start to live as a servant and a slave to each other, then we start to see people set free from their emotional and relational bondage. And what do I mean by that? Think about one person in your life who has done you wrong. One person who has hurt you or offended you in some way. And you have taken one of the following tacks in response. You've isolated them. You've shut them out of your life. You've damaged their reputation to others. You've struck back at them. Or you've taken some variation of hurting them. Now I know we're already saying, well, they hurt me first. I get that. But our reaction has been to hurt them back. We've all done it. Maybe you are doing it right now to someone in this room. Maybe you're doing it right now to someone in this building. Maybe you're going to see somebody at Christmas at the family dinner that you're doing it to. You don't talk to them anymore. You've isolated them. You don't have anything to do with them because they have hurt you so badly. Do you have a name in your mind? You got a little knot in your stomach now because I'm talking about this and you don't want to hear about it. Let's admit up front that they hurt you. Maybe they knew. Maybe they don't. It really doesn't matter. The point is, our pride has been stoked enough to retaliate. Now you say, wait a second, Paul. This is about what they've done to me. That's exactly the point. Because if you and I will take the approach of Jesus Christ, if we will come to serve and not be served, not only will we be freed of the bondage that we've put ourselves in, in holding that anger toward them, but we will free them too. Now immediately, the devil's streaming, nope, 
Don't listen to him. He's lying to you. Don't believe that. He doesn't know the hurt you've been through. And I'm telling you, I do. I've been hurt many times. And I'm telling you, I'm not lying. How do we know? Look at Mark 10, 45, and we're going to pray. Jesus had every right to keep us in bondage. There is no question that we offended him, hurt him, rebelled against him, and defied him in every way. As God, he has every right and should send us to hell. But what does he do? He came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom. Imagine if he had acted like us and didn't do that. We would have no reason to be here this morning. Imagine if he said, well, humanity, you hurt me. You rebelled against me. You don't get it. You don't understand what you've done. Forget it. I'm cutting off all relationship with you. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Instead, he humbled himself and came as a baby and sacrificed for us. See, the reality is that when we serve other people, as Jesus did, we have the power to set them free from guilt and from shame and from our control and from the jail we have put them in relationally and the damage we've done to them. Someone is never free. Listen now. Someone is never free if we hold a grudge or their guilt or their debt or their past over them like Damocles' sword. We just, we just have it constantly hovering over them. They will never be free until we pay the price of being a servant. I know that's true. Because I would not be free from my sin this morning if Jesus hadn't been there. And Jesus says, act like me. So the question as we conclude is, what can I do to free someone who's hurt me from the pain and the bondage and the stress that I now hold over them As we take the posture of a servant, we can ransom them now from what they're doing. That's a price that's paid to be free, to free a captive. That's what Jesus did with us. And now we have a responsibility as we serve the Lord and are a slave to the Lord to now serve one another and to deliver each other from this pain and this bondage that we have from them. And one more thing, we can't say, well, Let them take the first step. I'll I'll be glad to do that, Paul, if they will just take the first step. Jesus said, I came before you ever asked. I came before you ever wanted it. I came before you ever even thought about redemption. In fact, for thousands of years, I did everything for the Jews and they did nothing for me. And then they ignored me. In the fullness of time, when nobody was looking, that's when I came. So we can't say, well, as soon as that person approaches me, boom, then I'll forgive them. It's our job to do it now. And as we do that, oh, the ministry that we're going to have to people and the grace we're going to show to people and the joy that we're going to bring to each other's lives, the unity that's going to be created out of that. It's an example of what Christ has done for us. Let's close our eyes. One person. There's one person this morning. At least one person. 
I don't know the circumstances. I don't need to. But you're still holding it over them. And they hurt you. I'm not denying that. They hurt you. They damaged you. But you're under as much bondage as they are because you haven't given it up. Your marriage this morning, resistant, claiming your rights, looking out for yourself, not serving, not denying your rights for the love of the other person. Relationships, the church, outside the church, where do we need to act as a slave? I'm not saying it's easy. But it's what we're called to do. Christ gave himself. He put all our sins on himself. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he calls us to do the same. Lord, we thank you for this calling, even though it is so hard for us. Even though everything in our humanity resists it, we thank you that you have called us to live as Christ lived. We thank you that we can even say that because you have provided salvation for us. Lord, we praise you this morning that you're willing to deliver us. That because of the sacrifice and service of Jesus Christ, that we can be delivered forever. Now, as you have freed us from bondage, Lord, we need to free each other from bondage. Help us this week, Lord, because we need it. We can't do it on our own. This has to come from the Spirit. Help us this week as we yield to you to act as servants to each other, to minister to each other, to love each other, to show deference to each other, to be humble before each other for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of glorifying Christ. Lord, how much more will that glorify you than us declaring that we want to sit on your right and your left in heaven? That will bring great glory to you. And Lord, that's what we want to do, especially at this time of year. May people see your love in us. We thank you and praise you for this calling. And we pray you'd help us to carry it out. We pray this in Jesus' name.